InfoTrack continues. Once again, here's Chris Whitting. You've probably heard about the opioid addiction crisis that has swept our nation. But what are the origins of the problem, and how can it be solved? Here with the story, InfoTrack's Roy Mackey. Roy? Thanks, Chris. We're joined by Beth Macy, award-winning investigative journalist and now the author of Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America, which examines the decades-long path of the opioid epidemic. Let's just set the scene a bit. It seems as though it's getting worse and worse. How serious is the opioid problem today? Here's a number that really wows me, and it kind of wraps it all up in one sentence. We have lost 300,000 Americans to drug overdose in the last 15 years, and we're going to lose that many in only the next five. So that shows you sort of the curve that we're on. And public health experts, they don't know when it's going to plateau. That's scary, frankly. We're losing about 145 people a day. And Chris Christie said it was equivalent of a 9-11 every three weeks. So you examined how far back the roots of this opioid story go, right? Mm-hmm. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. I chose to tell sort of this 22-year history of the current opioid crisis. And I go back to when OxyContin was introduced in 1996 because what Purdue Pharma did was they sold it really hard, marketed it really hard in rural distressed areas in central Appalachia, in the westernmost county in Virginia. The reps were sent there into other distressed areas because they tended to have higher percentages of people with coal mining injuries, extracted labor injuries, factory injuries, and doctors were already prescribing competing opioids there. So what Purdue did was they bought data showing which doctors prescribed the most opioids, and then they sent the reps out to do a pitch on this new supposedly 12-hour lasting version of their opioid, OxyContin. But it was much stronger than any of the competitors that were currently on the market And people started abusing it immediately. And so you had a sort of a groundswell of policemen and a country doctor out there and some activists trying to get Purdue to take it off the market to make it abuse resistant. But they did not until 14 years later. So how rapidly can someone become addicted to it? I think it depends on the person. Certainly some people could become addicted after a week of using it. What I do know is that I just heard over and over, once the pills got hard to get and people's dealers started bringing in heroin and they would start snorting it, same as they had done with the pills. They said, after you've injected it three times, now I'm talking about heroin, you were definitely hooked. Hmm. And of course, I call the book dope sick because that's the word that users use to describe the feeling of withdrawal, which they all say is like the worst flu times 100. And I wanted readers to understand that, you know, at the end of their journey, they're not doing it to get high per se. They're just doing it to keep from being dope sick. And that is just such a strong motivator for these folks. They say it becomes more important than your family, more important than sex. It's your most important relationship. It becomes your God. Our guest on InfoTrack is Beth Macy, award-winning investigative journalist and the author of Dope Sick. And we're discussing the opioid epidemic. What is the overall success rate for people who are trying to break this addiction? Because just anecdotally from stories I've heard, it can't be very good. No. I found John Kelly at Harvard. The most recent research out of his office shows that it takes the average opioid-addicted user eight years and five to six treatment attempts just to achieve one year of sobriety. 
And that's frankly frightening, especially in the age of fentanyl and in the age when users don't know if there's fentanyl in their heroin. Many people simply don't have eight years. There's some controversy over something called medication-assisted treatment. Can you just maybe explain a little bit about what that treatment is and why there's disagreement over it? Sure. Maybe you've heard of methadone, which was you know invented in the 60s. Methadone and more recently a product called buprenorphine, the brand name is Suboxone, are used as blockers. So they are opioids themselves. If taken properly, they don't get you high, but they reduce your cravings. And what they do, practically speaking, especially when combined with therapy and really good treatment, is they reduce cravings and that reduces overdose deaths by 50, some say 60% compared to abstinence only programs, which are shown not to be nearly as effective, something along the lines of 10 to 12%. You know, the whole idea is we want to keep you alive so you can get better another day. And what I've seen with people who are on stable doses of MAT, medication assisted treatment, is they start to get their lives back together. They're not selling things. They're not stealing things. They're not prostituting. They're getting their lives back together, getting their kids back together. There's a woman in my book in her 50s, eight of 10 of her siblings, all addicted to Oxycontin. She's now gotten off the disability rank. She's gone back to school. She's going to be an RN. She's been on Suboxone for six years. She's doing great. But Law enforcement is skeptical because they see a lot of diversion on it. Uh, a lot of experts believe it's diverted and illicitly sold because there aren't enough wavered physicians to prescribe it. There's also been some pill mill activity around buprenorphine. You drive through Tennessee, you'll see signs, billboards saying, best Suboxone doctor. Many people told me that they operate cash only. They don't accept insurance. And it costs about $100 a week. This is, again, in the not ideal situation. And the users in that case told me that some doctors will prescribe twice as much because they know the only way you can afford to come back next week to get your Suboxone is if you sell half of it. Mm. And, and that's just outrageous. You know, we need more regulation of these clinics. What would also really help is to have more doctors willing to be wavered to prescribe it so that, say you're a pregnant woman and you go to your OBGYN, you don't have to be referred somewhere else. You can get that treatment right there. Or if you're at your general doctor, what I see here locally is just not enough, not even a tenth of enough physicians are wavered and are providing this addiction treatment. You also write about other grassroots efforts to fight the epidemic. So maybe you can just share a bit of hope in all of this. Sure. So I followed the travails of a working group out of Johnson City, Tennessee, Eastern Tennessee State University, paired with all the hospital corporations out there and the state mental health agency to open this treatment center, which was dispensing methadone mainly, and also eventually going to be offering Suboxone and yoga and all kinds of therapies, acupuncture, etc. But the people in this mainly conservative farm community didn't want it in their backyard, even though some privately whispered to the two doctors trying to open this, that they were dealing with it in their own family. They thought people would take too much methadone and then maybe get in a car wreck or hit their kid on the way to school or something like that, even though they were really going to do it the right way and make sure the dosing was appropriate and whatnot. And so there was this huge grassroots effort to shut it down. But what this working group did is they just hung there. They went meeting after meeting. They brought in people from other methadone clinics elsewhere that have been operating successfully, and they eventually got it passed. And there have been no incidents so far. It's been open over a year now. 
but they simply had to keep willing to get their butts kicked, basically, in a series of public meetings. And I see the same thing going on with other issues here. We have this very reluctant police chief here in Roanoke who doesn't want to allow a syringe exchange to open. A syringe exchange not only gives addicts clean needles in exchange for dirty ones, it's also getting those dirty ones off the street and cutting down on the spreading of hepatitis C and HIV. But they can only see it as enabling users. And that's some of the same arguments you hear against MAT. It's treating one opioid with another and that kind of thinking. But this drug is just so much stronger than alcoholism, for instance, which abstinence AA and NA have been shown to work at better success rates. But, you know, we've got 2.6 million people now with opioid use disorder. And even though physicians aren't overprescribing opioids in the way they were in the 90s and in the aughts, we need to make treatment available and also disease prevention services. And I think if I were able to wave a wand, I would talk about a system of urgent cares for the addicted. Beth Macy, the author of Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America. Beth, do you have a website? My website is authorbethmacy.com. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us today on InfoTrack. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. For InfoTrack, I'm Roy Mackey. You're listening to InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know.